All right. Well, we are, uh, my name is Mark Aaron, one of the pastors here, and just a privilege to open Revelation chapter 10 and 11. So if you have a Bible, open it there. Um, uh, You can turn it on if you have it on a phone or whatever, but it's also going to be on the screens. Just to give you a little recap. So we are uh, studying through Revelation, and we're in the midst of all these seals and trumpets. And what we found last week is that Even in the midst of all the judgments, people still do not turn to God. So judgments alone are not enough to kind of arouse an an unbelieving world uh, to come to Christ. So that's sort of the context, which leads to this question before we start reading. Here's the question. In a hostile world, in this culture war that we find ourselves in, How are we as believers called to fight? What's our strategy? So about a month ago, a big wrestling tournament. We just came to the end of wrestling season uh, for high school. And and, uh, we were in the thick of it. And my son was wrestling. It was first and second. We're we're on the verge of winning uh, first ever big tournament. And uh, here we are. And my son in the final match suffers a humiliating defeat. And here's why it was humiliating, not just because you lose. Any defeat in wrestling is humiliating, right? Someone just exerted their will, physically dominated you. But uh, this was especially hard because after this kid wins, he's riding my son out. And at the end, you know, he's holding him down on the ground. And as he gets up, he holds his hand on his neck and holds him there. And stands up over him and kind of kind of stomps over top of him and just stands there and starts stomping over and he turns and he looks toward me and our side of the crowd that had been cheering. And of course I had been cheering loud. You know, I'm one of those parents. I'm not one of those wrestling parents because I don't know any wrestling moves. So like I want to be able to yell some like, you know, build your base, like grab his arm, like do something. And but I just yell his name, like go back. Yeah. Like try harder. And anyway, well, this kid like stomps around and kind of looks over like taunting, you know, I assume me and our kind of part of the crowd. Well, here's the thing. Do you ever feel like that? Like, man, we're losing and it's not just, it's not just that. It's like, we're getting humiliated in the process. Here's the question. Like, How do you respond? How do you respond to that picture of feeling like helpless in a world, like we're losing? I don't know about you, but we need a game plan. You don't go into a war without a game plan, without a a strategy. So are you ready for how we fight back, church? You guys ready for this? Some of you are really nervous, but trust me, it's good. Revelation 10, let's see. Let's see the, the game plan here. Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. And he held a little scroll opened in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea, his left on the land, and he called out in a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, 
seal up what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. That's interesting. We never do find out what the seven thunders said. Isn't that a little mysterious? Why would he say that? I think what he's saying is, you know what? There's some things that God has just chosen to not reveal, and that's okay. But he wants John to focus on what he has revealed, which is this little scroll. So look at verse 5. Then the angel I had seen standing on the land and on the sea raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be a delay, but in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The mystery is going to be revealed. Can't wait for it, right? Don't you guys want to know what the mystery is? What's interesting, this is an important theme in the New Testament, this idea of mystery. And it's not like a, a whodunit type thing, like a, a mystery. It's in that way. It's, what it's referring to is the mystery that was revealed in Christ. I want you to imagine being a, a, a follower of God in the Old Testament. And you've got sacrifices, uh, priesthood, you've got a temple, and all this like weird stuff. And you're thinking, wow. If you're, if you're a Jewish person living before Christ, you're like, yeah, this is an interesting kingdom. Like, we kill animals and we smear blood over our doorposts once a year to celebrate Passover. Like, what is that? It's a mystery, right? But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the mystery that was revealed was revealed in Christ. Christ crucified is the mystery revealed. The suffering servant. Like, what's the Messiah going to be like? Well, He's going to die on a cross, be buried in a tomb, and raised from the dead. That is the mystery revealed. Hebrews, all that symbolism, all that, the priesthood, the temple, that symbolism of Christ crucified. Okay, now, another question. What's the significance of this mighty angel that's standing with one foot on land, one foot on the sea? What, what's that all about? In chapter 11, we're going to see that there's a beast that comes out of the sea. In chapter 13, we're going to see a beast that comes out of, or sorry, chapter 11, he's coming out of the abyss, 13 out of the sea. Here's the point. Satan is real. There are unseen powers at work coming out of, and out of the earth is kind of a, a picture of, um, of Satan's area of his dominion. But the mighty angel is like standing over it. What's that a picture of? Like there's a reason you, that, that kid like stomps over, right? You, you're like standing over the, you're showing like you're the victor. You're in charge. You're the one who exerts your power over. What this is saying is Satan is real, but God is sovereign over him. God is over creation. God is over the events of history. God is over the seen and unseen world. So this leads us to our first point, if you're taking notes. This is how we fight, church. This is how we fight. We never forget that Jesus is Lord of all. All in caps. Capital letters there, all. I want to ask you, what beast coming out of the sea are you afraid of? 
What keeps you up at night? What makes you anxious when you think about it? We've been saying this as we've gone through. Chaos is only chaos if you factor Jesus out of the equation. A stormy sea is only scary if Jesus is not in your boat, right? But he is. And here's the chaos. And here's Jesus standing over it. That's the imagery that this apocalyptic genre of literature kind of wants us to see here. The lordship of Jesus. Here's the chaos. Here's Jesus. Here's the crazy. Here's Jesus. Here's the bad diagnosis. Here's Jesus. Here's the fill in the blank with whatever it is you're afraid of. And here's Jesus over it all. This is a theme in the book of Revelation. Let's look at verses 8 through 11 now. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This is not a weird, like a chocolate scroll. Like, what is this? What is this scroll? Like, like, a, like one of those Easter bunnies, you know, it looks like a bunny. You're eating this, like, is the scroll like some chocolate or something? What is this? What's going on here? This is a clear reference to Ezekiel chapter 2, which I know a lot of you just read earlier this morning in your quiet time. Probably not. Uh, let me tell you what. Uh, Ezekiel 2, it's the same thing. He tells Ezekiel, eat the scroll. It's as sweet as honey, but then it becomes bitter to him. What's this uh, a reference to? What he's saying is, hey, Ezekiel, take this scroll, eat it, digest it. What does that mean? And it's going to be sweet to you? That's the experience of anyone who knows Jesus. At some point in your life, God's word is sweet to you, right? It's sweet to you. You, you experience its promises. Like maybe some of you remember a time when you like read Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And it's given you hope. It's given you courage. It's given you peace, right? God's word is sweet to you. That, that's the normal experience of somebody who loves Jesus. But there's a part that we don't often talk about, and I'm kind of surprised this is in the Bible as well. Because there's a part of God's word that gives us a stomach ache. And you know what part that is? It's the part when he says, Ezekiel, you love my word, don't you? And he's like, yes. He goes, now go share it. And go share it with a people who will not listen to you. Same thing happens to Isaiah. Isaiah 6, sees the glory of God. Here am I, Lord, send me. The presence of God is sweet to him. And he's like, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go preach to people who will be ever seeing but never perceiving, hearing, never understanding. He's like, they're not going to listen to you. That is the stomach ache of God's word. Oh, man, this is so great. I, I'm just so excited about Jesus, and I'm reading this in a coffee shop, and I'm, I want to share it. Yay, Jesus. And then I turn to share it, and someone's like, that's so offensive. 
and narrow-minded and arrogant and rude that you would share that. And you're like, all of a sudden it becomes a stomach ache, a burden to you. So here's the second point. This is how we fight. We enjoy the sweetness of believing and we embrace the burden of proclaiming God's word. We do need to experience the sweetness of believing in God's word. But we also have to accept the fact, we have to embrace the fact that it's a burden to proclaim it. You know, we often, I think sometimes we as preachers and, you know, we often try to rally the troops and like, come on, it's just like a good movie. Like, you want to go share it, right? Don't you want to share the things you love? That's true. But usually when I share about movies, I'm not telling someone to repent and believe in Jesus, right? It's, it's hard to preach the gospel. We don't have to talk about this. Some of you have experienced this, like maybe you came to know Jesus in college. This is, this is such a common thing that I, as I talk to you guys, uh, college students, like maybe freshman year, sometime in college, you come to Jesus and you're like, man, I give my life to Jesus. And you're so excited to go home and tell mom and dad and all your siblings. And you get home and you're like, you guys, Jesus. And they're like, quiet down. And all of a sudden you feel like you're at exile at home for the next, every time you go home on break, right? Because you feel like a foreigner in your own home. And that's the stomach ache part of, or, of, of God's word. Or maybe it's a coworker. Like, I can't, I just want to tell this person about Jesus and you share Jesus with them. And then you get fired because, you know, you broke some rule at work or something. Like, it costs you a job, a promotion. Your supervisor was not happy about it. Like, that has happened at Veritas. It's great news, but people don't like it. And so the point here is, but we don't proclaim it in anger and rage. We proclaim it with the burden, more with tears than anger. That's the ministry that Jesus handed John. And that's what he is telling us. Now, let's turn to chapter 11. And I'm just going to be straight up. One commentator said, this is one of the harder chapters in, uh, in the book of Revelation to interpret. But let's, let's give it a shot here. I'm not your average person. Like, I'm pretty smart, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. This, then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay. He gives them this measuring rod, which is like, imagine like a, a bamboo stick or something. They didn't have tape measures, so they would go around and measure. But the symbolism of measuring it is basically of, it's symbolic of God's ownership and protection. Imagine if you're like the equivalent of, of uh, a surveyor comes out to measure your property lines. That would be symbolic of your area of ownership or this under your uh, rule or dominion. And later in chapter 20, I think, 21, he's going to measure the city of God. Remember, he's saying, this is the realm of God. But, but something weird happens here. Look, look at verse 3. 
I, I will, oh, well, verse 2, he's, he's saying, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. He's saying only measure this certain part. The temple area, this kind of represents the people of God, but God's protection is only going to be over part of the people of God. And some of the people of God are going to be exposed to suffering. That's weird. Well, look at verse 3. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. Okay, let's stop there. Who are these two witnesses that go out? Who are these two witnesses? Well, let's see if we can find some clues here in the context. So this is a clear reference to Zechariah chapter 4, where it talks about a lampstand and two olive trees. Here's what's going on in Zechariah 4. We're not, we're not going to turn there. But, but basically the lampstand. Remember what the lampstand symbolizes in Revelation 1.20? Remember Jesus walks among the lampstands? And we talked about the lampstand. What does the lamp do? It shines. We said, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Like it represents the people of God. In Zechariah 4, he says there's a lampstand and there's two olive trees. Why an olive tree? Well, why olive trees? Well, the olive tree, the oil produces uh, oil, I guess, keeps the lamp burning. And there's two uh, characters there, Joshua and Zerubbabel. They are the leaders of God that keep pouring the oil into light uh, the flame for the people of God. And then there's a really, one of the most famous verses uh, in the Minor Prophets uh, is there in Zechariah 4. Some of you guys know this. Have you heard this? It's not by might nor by power, but by my, what is it? By my spirit, declares the Lord, right? It's a famous verse. The context of that is God saying, hey, Israel, it's not your military might that's keeping this lamp burning. It's not your political power that's keeping this lamp burning. It's my leaders who are empowered by my spirit that keeps the lamp burning. It's not by might, your might, nor by your power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. That's what's going on here. And so we see that my best guess on what this is, these two witnesses, and two of them, we have a representative, perhaps, of Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets here, that are, are these, it's, it's like he's saying, the church, the church is the lampstand of God, the brightness, and we kind of have this prophetic ministry like Moses and Elijah have. The point being, the gospel keeps going into the darkness of this world, not by political force, not by military power, but by the witness about Jesus Christ. That's how the church fights the culture war. We just proclaim Jesus. We don't try to get 
our power and exert it over people. This is sort of the message here. What's the 1260 days, 42 months? Those are both the same thing. Three and a half years. What's significant about this? I think what he's saying is that part of the church, remember, part of it was measured and protected, and part of it was exposed to suffering. I think what he's saying is for three and a half years, I mean, this period, it could represent Elijah's during the the drought, the three and a half year drought. It could represent the three years of Jesus' ministry. It could represent uh, a well-known three and a half period of time for these first century audience, the Maccabean revolt from 164 uh, or 167 to 164 BC. That would be kind of like if I threw out 9-11, you guys would all know what that meant, 9-11. That three and a half years would be very familiar with that audience. But however, whatever that exactly is a reference to, I think what it's saying is there's going to be a period of suffering, hardship, and it's going to be for part of the church, not all of the church. It's going to be a struggle, but keep going and look at what happens to these two witnesses. They have power to proclaim judgment, but look at this, verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. These two witnesses are killed and their bodies are laid out in the streets. Sodom in Egypt, it says. Sodom, a city that represents depravity or sin. Think Las Vegas. You say, I say Vegas and you know, Sin City, right? That's like Sodom. Egypt. I say Egypt, you would know uh, Pharaoh, slavery, bondage. One commentator says about Sodom and Egypt, this is symbolic, says this city is every city and no city. It represents the city of man. It's Iowa City. It's New York City. It's London, right? It's, it's the city of man. It's our world. I think what we're seeing here through Revelation is that Although martyrdom and being killed for your faith is not going to be the story for all of the church throughout history. It will be the story for some of the church and to not fear in the midst of it. Because that's normal in a world that hates God. I think Jesus here is revealing the game plan to us. And let me go to Luke chapter 6 to make it a little more clear. Let's, let's, some of this apocalyptic language, it's easy to get lost in it. But I want to come back to Luke 6, and I, I think this is what Jesus is saying through Revelation. Luke 6, verse 27. But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Verse 35. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and wicked. If you want to know what God is like, he is gracious to ungrateful people. He is kind to wicked people that hate him. That is what God is like. And that's what we are called to as well. So church, point number three, this is how we fight. Sacrifice and love. Bless, here's the formula. Bless, do good, pray for. Can you remember that? Bless, do good, pray for. Can we just say it? I know it's a little yeah, childish, but can we just do it? Bless, do good, pray for. Okay, so someone curses you. How do you respond? Bless. So you do good, pray for. Okay, someone punches you. What do you do? The second one, do good. You bless, do good, pray for. Okay, your enemy, enemy number one, hates Jesus, hates you and everything you stand for. Right? I won't make you repeat it again, but you find, pray for them. That's the formula. Hey, parents, try this on your kid. Johnny punched me. He won't share with me. Pull him aside and like, all right, here's what we're going to do. Bless. Like, what can you say to him that would be really nice and kind? Let's say something kind. I can't think of anything. Well, let's think of something. Uh, he tried to steal, but he, he ruined my toy. Okay, let's do something good for them. What can we do good to Johnny? And let's stop right now. And let's pray for your brother, Johnny. Like, this is great. Uh, Letha did this all the time with our kids. Um, That's a great formula, great parenting tactic. But what does this look like in real life? I want to go back to our humiliated loss, humiliating loss about four weeks ago. Award ceremony, podium. And that kid to just, like, put his neck or put his hand on my son's neck and taunted us, was standing on the podium, number one, holding the tournament bracket, his victory. And uh, so all the kids get off the podium. And you know what I do. It's like a crowded gym. And I look at my son, Makai, who's with me, and I'm like, I'm going after him. And I start fighting my way through the crowd. And he grabs my coat and he's like, no, dad, no, no. And I'm like, I'm going. (laughs) And I've got my fist clenched. And I'm like, I'm finding that kid and his parents. And I'm busting my way through the crowd. And with my fist, I find him. And I cock my arm back. And I reach out and I'm like, congratulations. That was a great win. Man, great job on a big win. And as we were walking out, 
of the gym. I'm like, all right, boys, that's how we fight. That's what we do. Someone dominates us, puts their hand on our neck to humiliate us. Bless, do good, pray for. That's how we fight. Three weeks later, state tournament comes around. And I'm looking at the bracket. And I'm seeing that kid's name. And I'm like, wait a minute. If this happens and this happens, uh-oh. Uh They're going to face each other again. And they did. You have to wait to the end for that rest of that story. Do you see this repeated theme in Revelation? Jesus is standing over the universe watching his people die in the streets. That's a paradox. God's sovereignty and your suffering. And God's like, Fight with sacrifice. Suffer well. And for those of you that might be thinking, I don't know if I like that game plan. Let's read on. Verse 11. But after three and a half days, I think that's symbolic of an even shorter time. The breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. Those dead bodies came to life. Whoa. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. There's a moment, Philippians 2 moment. Every knee shall bow and tongue confess Jesus is Lord. The people who killed those witnesses for Christ are terrified as they see their bodies resurrected from the dead. Let's keep reading verse 14. Verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty who was, who is, who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, an earthquake, and severe 
Him. Suffering church, the enemy's hand on your neck is not the end of the story. Glory is how your story ends. That's the message of Revelation 10 and 11. Yes, though the sorrow may last for a night, or three and a half years, or three and a half days, resurrection is coming. Victory is coming. Death is never the end of your story. It's just the beginning. That's the message of Revelation. So let me finish the wrestling story. And for those of you who don't like wrestling, wrestling season's over, so you might be done with these illustrations for a while. But let me finish the story. Wells Fargo Arena, Iowa State Wrestling, big thing. Day two. We take a seat, third row up, right in the middle, because we don't know what mat they're going to be on. There's eight mats. They announce the mat for this revenge match. Mat number four, right in front of us. Spotlight. State tournament. Row three. Here we go again. The match starts. It's a battle. But Beck's looking sharp, takes him down. It's going back and forth, kind of dominating. I mean, it's eight to six, third period. That's the last period. There's like 45 seconds left. The kid gets an escape. It's eight, seven. I'm filming this. I'm shaking. The camera is shaking. As the time ticks down and the kid is just, he's going on. Is he on the attack? Nothing to lose. Down one, state tournament, winner go home, right? The blood bracket. He's firing, shooting, boom. Gets into his leg with 10 seconds left. Beck grabs onto him, is like kind of in that position where he's almost hanging upside down. It's seven. Six, five, the kid starts to move him. Three, two, <laughs> one. Beck wins eight, seven. Let's go. All right, yeah, there we go. Sawgrim's crowd about it. Dude, that was amazing. And I yelled out, I'm like, Beck, put your hand on his neck. No, no, we didn't. Like, Hold him down. Like, no. That was like a great wrestling move. Like Beck runs over to the scorer's table and runs off. I'm like, can we do it? Like, come on, celebrate. You know how wrestlers are. It's like, no, it's down to business. Let's go. Uh, excited. You know, they're cheering. It was good. But, but here's the point. The, this is the big point of the story. You know what I do? Have done this last week. I'll go back and I'll rewatch it. Not like obsessively, not like a weird amount, but just, you know what I mean? Just, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, you got to rewatch it. And I kind of laugh because, like, 
And it's the thing, we're not a sports family. This is all a new experience for me. Like anything that, you know, our kids achieve sports-wise, it's like on them. They're like, you know, it's like in spite of us because we just don't like do a lot of this. We're like, hey, you want to do a club? Then get a job and pay for it, right? So, uh, and he did, right? So they, they work for it and it's great. But I was like super emotionally invested in this. It was kind of good because now for those of you sports families, I'm like, I get it. Let's go. Uh, but here's the thing. I watch that, and I see the camera shaking. And I see the nerves of anxiety and, oh, no, how does this end? But when I rewatch it, it's way more fun when I know how it ends. Because I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And it's still like a little thrilling to watch it. Here's the book of Revelation. Do you see this repeated theme? Like, God is sovereign, you're going to suffer, and it ends with a party, and it keeps repeating. I feel like I'm preaching the same sermon over and over. What God is telling us is like, just rewatch it. Like, we know how it ends. And yes, there's shaking, but it's like, you know, right, that your body is going to be raised from the dead. And that's essentially every church service we do on Sundays it's like re-watching the film. That's why we sing. Because we're singing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we sing stuff like, how I long to breathe the air of heaven. We sing it. That's the equivalent of us re-watching a story that we already know the end to. It's not like we're suffering and we're like, well, I hope this all works out. We know it works out. It worked out great for Jesus. And for us. So here's the last point. This is how we fight church. We keep singing death taunt songs because we know how it ends. And when we sing, we're remembering how he conquered death. And we follow his example. And that's how we fight the culture war. We fight like Jesus. We overcome evil with good. Love, sacrifice, bless, do good, pray for. Let's pray. Jesus, we need some encouragement this morning. Some of us may be shaking with anxiety or stress or fear. And we just need to be reminded, personally reminded, that you're real, that you care for us, you love us. God, as we sing, as we turn our attention to you, would you meet us, meet every person in this room with a reminder of who you are and how the story ends. Let's worship.